Well, welcome back, everyone. This is our final class uh, of, the, of the year. And as you know, we've been going through this book, The Unfolding Word, the story of the Bible from creation to new creation. And today, hopefully, we'll see that in particular as we want to finish up with Revelation. So we're going to say everything we want to know about Revelation in 35 minutes. So that would be pretty amazing. Um, but as you know, we've been tracing the story of Scripture from Genesis all the way through to Revelation now, and notice that there was a promised seed. And in particular, obviously that's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But the purpose of it all was to have a holy people in a holy place. And where Revelation ends is with the seed amidst his holy people and his holy place in the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. But Revelation, as you know, is one of the most easily misunderstood books uh, of scripture. It's talked about a lot in a lot of different ways. Your handout is um, four pages, not because I want to go through all four pages today, but I wanted to leave you with some really helpful resources. And in addition to the Bible and the Holy Spirit, the two best resources I can recommend to you are uh, Dr. Dennis Johnson's book called The Triumph of the Lamb, um, which is really terrific. And then Dr. Godfrey has a series that's put out uh, by Ligonier, on Revelation. There's nothing published on it yet, but there is a series available, and it's terrific. And I'd actually like to start off with a quote from uh, Dr. Godfrey on page one of your handout. It says, the book of Revelation has fascinated Christians over many centuries. It has inspired thorough study, good spiritual counsel, and an immense amount of silliness. Too often, Christians have come to Revelation with a whole list of questions they immediately want answered. What or who is 666? Who is the beast? What is the thousand years described in Revelation 20? These questions and many more are important and fascinating, but in order to answer them correctly, we must understand the basic character and meaning of the book as a whole. And then he goes on to say, the revelation is about the meaning of the history of the church rather than a detailed prophecy of specific events throughout the history of church. To help Christians understand the meaning of the historical events that surround them, no matter the century in which they live, offering encouragement to them in present suffering and filling them with hope of the coming glory. I think that's really a great summary. In other words, Christians should not read Revelation and come away freaked out. Non-Christians should read Revelation and come away freaked out. The Revelation is given to the church to comfort her to tell her what is happening, what has happened, and what will happen, and what to expect um, uh, during that time period, and also to recognize the reality that the triune God is with us, that the triune God is for us, and that Christ is coming again, and that all things will be made new. But in this life, we are to expect tribulation. We are to expect difficulties. Jesus had warned us over and over as they treated him, so uh, will we be treated in this age. And then this morning... If you turn to page four of your outline, I was plagued with sleep in the night saying, there's something I forgot to put in the outline that would have been so helpful and I couldn't remember what it was. So now I'm tacking on page four because it's Dr. Godfrey's outline. And I had it on a paper copy of my notes, but I didn't have it in my notes to print out. So on page four, this is really great. So this is again from Dr. Godfrey. And he says, to grasp the meaning of such a work, we must have a clear sense of its overall structure. 
In this book in particular, its literary construction and form are absolutely crucial to understand its meaning. So the form helps us understand its meaning. Again, interpreters have been very divided over the character of that structure, offering widely divergent suggestions and outlines. This study, the one he was working on, has adopted a distinctive outline for the book, seven cycles, each composed of seven sections. This outline is drawn from indications in the text of Revelation, and its validity will be demonstrated again and again in the course of our study of the text. Ultimately, the validity of this outline will demonstrate, be demonstrated by the coherence we will see as we study the cycles and by the aid uh, it provides for understanding the meaning of the text. Each cycle has a distinctive theme, which is blessing and encouragement to Christians in every generation. Again, you hear that over and over, right? Blessings and encouragement in every generation. Revelation is not met, meant to scare the church, but to give her the utmost confidence that her king, Jesus, is ruling and reigning now, and he will rule and reign forever, and he is coming again. There's some things that are going to happen, but he's in control. He's got this, and he's got us, and there's a purpose for it all. And so then Dr. Godfrey's outline goes through seven cycles, and we can't unpack all of that, but then each of those cycles has seven parts. For instance, cycle one, uh, Revelation 1, 4 through 3.22, is the church in its suffering must remain faithful. And then for those of you who know Revelation, right, it says to the seven churches who are at. And then it lists those. So one cycle with seven subpoints, And then the same thing throughout. Cycle 2, the church's suffering advances the purpose of history and the gospel. Cycle 3, the church's suffering in history is less than the suffering of the wicked. Cycle 4, the church is preserved by God throughout history. You'll notice that's the very centerpiece. God is preserving his church throughout history. Trials are going to come, tribulation's going to come, persecution's going to come, but God is going to preserve his church throughout history. Cycle 5, the church is encouraged to faithfulness by the final judgment visited on the wicked. The church is vindicated for its faithfulness in the final judgment. And finally, the church, as the bride of Christ, inherits the new earth as Babylon, the harlot, and all the forces of wickedness are judged. And so that structure actually helps us understand the book. When we get into um, all the different, when, when people try to interpret it differently. So then I thought, these tips, right? We can't go through all of Revelation, but let me give you just a few nuggets from both Dr. Godfrey and Dr. Johnson as well as others who have tackled this in depth. So this is on page one of your outline, helpful tools for interpreting and understanding the book of Revelation. The first one is that Revelation uses recapitulation. In other words, it doesn't just go chronologically. Obviously, chapter 21 is after chapter 3 in the text, but it doesn't mean it necessarily is in history. And we shouldn't find this too odd because we've already found that throughout Scripture. If you remember when we looked at the book of Genesis, we said it had a structure of 10 toledotes, 10 generations. And so it would tell the generation of so-and-so, and then it would back up and start and tell the generation of somebody else and back up and tell the generation. So you get recapitulation in scripture itself, we don't find that odd. We don't even find that really odd in literature itself. One of the best examples that we can think about is Charles Dickens with Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, which a commentator on uh, Revelation said is really helpful. If you think about it, 
Um, Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by Christmas, or he visits Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future, right? So when he's in Christmas future, he's still like seeing something that's going to come, but he's in the present time. And when he's in the present time, he sees Christmas past. And you see that the time frames don't always necessarily go chronologically, but you get the story, you get the meaning, you completely understand what Charles Dickens is driving at in the story. And the same thing happens with John when he sees different visions. Some of them he's seeing a vision of something that already happened, the the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. In some he's seeing something that will happen, and some he's seeing some that that are happening then. And they aren't necessarily all in chronological order, but the scripture itself and the text of Revelation gives us a key to understanding that. But sometimes people think it's all just chronological. And if you just read it chronological, you're going to miss that big piece, that big interpretive tool to recognize that recapitulation is going on and it's revisiting things, um, which is how we understand things all, all the time. So recapitulation is asking, really, you want to ask when you read Revelation, when are we? Are we now? Are we when Christ was on earth? Are we when Christ will return? And that really helps you to get situated in terms of what is this particular passage or this particular cycle telling me about. The other one is location, just like in real estate, right? Location, location, location. It matters. John sees and says in his visions, which sometimes we just gloss over, he saw something on earth. And then he saw something in heaven, and he saw something on earth, and he saw something in heaven. And if we collapse that all to think, oh, this all just is happening chronologically right here, we're going to miss it. Sometimes he tells us about the same event from two different angles, two different camera angles, if you will, like a really good film, a really good movie. Like you get a picture of chapter 5, for instance, is a picture of the ascension of Jesus Christ. John sees a vision. And there's this scroll, and nobody in heaven or on earth is found worthy to open the scroll. And he's weeping. And everyone's just devastated that whatever this scroll is, it obviously seems really important, and nobody's found worthy to open it. And then a lamb enters, the lamb that was slain, and he's worthy to open it. Right? That's a vision of the ascension of Jesus Christ, the one whose blood was spilled, the one who is now resurrected, the one that was slain is now standing, and he's worthy to open it. And what's the response to that in heaven is rejoicing. But that happened before, in physical space and time, John received this vision. Christ has already been ruled and reigned and ascending. But that's heaven's perspective on the ascension, if you will, a camera angle looking at that. And then another camera angle will look at something from the earth. You know, what's happening on the earth when... The, the, the plagues are, you know, uh, and the bulls are, are pulled or poured out or what have you. So it's important to ask ourselves, when are we and where are we? And then finally, we want to ask, what happens? Sometimes we're trying to drill down, uh, as Pastor was even saying today, to figure out what are the seven baskets and what are the 12 baskets? And sometimes those are really important questions. But in Revelation in particular, we want to get what is the meaning of what's happening here? What's going on? So in Revelation 5, what you, what you clearly come away with is that it's tragic that the scroll can't be opened. Someone enters who can open it, and there's rejoicing. And they even 
say who they're rejoicing to. Worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and glory and honor. And they list seven things, right? The number of completion, the fullness of all the praise worthy of God is given to Jesus, the lamb that was slain there. And clearly, that's the meaning of it. We might have a million different questions about some of the things in there, but the meaning of the text is really clear. And so when you go through it, those things are just helpful. Again, we're not going to have the time in the next 24 minutes to go through all of Revelation. (laughs) But thinking about recapitulation, it doesn't just go chronologically. It goes back and forth. Location, sometimes he's talking about things that happen in heaven. Sometimes he's talking about things that happen on earth. And then the meaning, asking why is this here or what does it mean? More so than what does every piece in it mean? For instance, in Acts, you remember when Peter had a vision um, in Acts 9 (laughs) of a sheet falling down, (laughs) Acts something, middle of Acts, uh, of the sheet falling down from heaven where he was getting, the meaning of the text was that nothing's unclean anymore, don't call those unclean, and Gentiles in particular are not unclean, and that Jews and Gentiles are together. But none of us sit around and think, well, how big was the sheet? Or how come the animals didn't fall off the sheet? Or which animals were on the sheet? Like, all the questions that we bring to Revelation, we don't do to Peter's vision. Show John the same respect. (laughs) Scripture will tell you what it's like or what it means, just like it did with Peter's. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. Very good. So then, look at Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, and notice that it says revelation. Sometimes people call revelations. It's, this is one revelation. This is one book. It's one accounting of the person and work of Christ. And so it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place, He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before your throne, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's rich. <laughs> That's telling us what this is about. It's a revelation about Jesus Christ, and it's actually a revelation from Jesus Christ as well. Jesus is revealing himself to us, and he's revealing the truth about himself. He's revealing him, and he's giving it to his servants. He's giving it to his church. This is meant to be a great comfort to you, to recognize who Jesus is and what he's doing, that he has come um, 
to, to, re, to reveal himself. And after you read this rich opening passage, you get the central idea of revelation like all of scripture is exalting or trying to point to who Christ is. Again, that's why it's going to describe many things that are difficult for us living in this present evil age, living between the tick of Christ's first coming and the talk of his second coming. But he doesn't want us to scare us. At the very beginning, he's reminding us of who our Lord is and who our Savior is and even who we are in him. It's going to exalt him. Note it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. If you do not come away from the book of Revelation with an overwhelming sense of the person and work of Jesus Christ as the one who is risen, as the one who is ruling, as the one who is reigning and returning, then we haven't properly understood Revelation. Dennis Johnson's book is called The Triumph of the Lamb. You want to summarize this? Jesus wins. It's the triumph of the lamb over sin, over Satan, over death, over all of his enemies, now and always. It's about him and us in him. And then it goes on to say, it's given to show his servants, right? Not the world at large, but in particular, you who have eyes to see and you who have ears to hear, that you get to to hear these things. And notice also that it says, things that must soon take place. This is about history. And it says it must it must take place. This is part of God's plan. This is God of God, part of God's purpose, his providence, his promises that he made at the very beginning. He's fulfilling twice in this passage. It says that the time is near. And so, friends, we're living in the last days. You know, one of the big questions people want to come to Revelation says, when is the last days? Right now. You're, you're living in them. Notice that John even identifies himself in verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom, that patient endurance that are in Christ. John is identifying himself as he writes this book as being part of the tribulation. And so then when you get to, you know, try to figure out what are the thousand years, I would submit to you and we would submit to you. It's a figurative number. We're in that period. We're in the last time. We're in the church age. Pentecost, Jesus Christ came. He, ro- he, he died. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. Pentecost happened. The next thing on the redemptive historical clock is the return of the king. And so living between that tick of his first coming and the talk of his second coming is the church age, is the last days. John the Apostle identifies himself as someone who's living in the last days, living in the tribulation here in Revelation, as he did in 1 John, as Peter does elsewhere. This is it. There are more things to come in the sense of it'll get worse before it gets better, Scripture tells us. But the next thing to come is the return of the king. And so we know that we're living in the last days. The kingdom has already been inaugurated. Jesus couldn't have been more clear about that when he was on earth. John, who wrote this book, said in 1 John, he said, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. How do we know it's the last days? Because of the blasphemy against our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, because of the persecution of the church, because of the lies that are going on about it, because of the suffering, because Christ hasn't, 
hasn't returned yet. It's the last hour. It's the last days. It's the last time period. And Jesus, when he ascended into heaven or when he was giving the disciples the Great Commission, he said, most authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, right? What did he say? All authority. We're not waiting for some future time where Jesus is going to have all authority in heaven and on earth. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. His mission is accomplished, and now he's applying the redemption that he merited to his people, to his church. And he's preserving the world until the last one that he died for is gathered into his fold. And then he's going to come back. Like that. He's the one who's in control. And so John is recognizing that he's our brother. He's a partner in the tribulation in the kingdom with patient endurance. And then there's a blessing that's said in verse 3. It says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so this is the first, again, of seven blessings. I don't think they fall out neatly into the seven cycles that I talked about. It would be really cool if they did. (laughs) Um, But I don't think that they do. But there are seven blessings in the book of Revelation. Two at the very end that we'll read in a minute. But hear it as coming from Christ. He's the one. Who's the one who's pouring out these, these blessings upon his church? Don't miss this. The first message is grace and peace to you. This is exactly what you're going to need in this present evil age until he returns grace and peace. And so this isn't the risen and ascended Savior, just, hey, warm wishes. I hope it works out great. Good luck. Grace and peace. Grace, meaning our salvation, everything that we need for faith and life, he's given us in himself. The forgiveness of our sins an imputed righteousness, an adoption, his abiding and indwelling Holy Spirit, and peace. We have peace with God. We're at war with the world. And the rest of the book is going to make that clear so you're not confused. Hey, why are all these things going on? Because they hate Christ. They hate his gospel. This is what we've been talking about from the beginning. There's been this war going on between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And you're going to hear a lot about the serpent in this book. It's a real battle. It's a real war. And the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent are at odds. But you, who know the Lord, are part of the the seed of the woman. You're forgiven in him. You are beloved in him. You are adopted in him. You are sealed in him. Revelation will go on to say. There's nothing that's going to be able to separate you from the hand of God. Romans had said that, right? Not life, not death, but persecution, things to come, things present. Man, but it looks awful in Revelation. Yeah, but nothing. Be comforted, Christian. Be assured there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So he says, grace and peace to you. But who's giving this grace and peace? If I do it, it's warm wishes. Pastor Chuck gives us grace and peace. Oh, lovely. I can't save you, but I can point you to the Savior I'm blessed to be called as the minister of the gospel. Let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about the Father as well. Let me tell you about the Spirit. So who's giving this? Peace and grace? The opening is Trinitarian to the core. 
It says, from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's referring to God the Father. And then it says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. How many Holy Spirits are there? One. Right? (laughs) So why does it say seven? The very first number mentioned in the book of Revelation we don't take literally. Right? We don't think there are seven spirits. It's talking about the fullness of the one spirit. Seven is the number of completion. The one who sees all, the one who knows all, the one who cares about all that one. The one who is and who was is to, in to, come, is to come, the eternal, incomprehensible, immutable God, the Father, the Holy Spirit who knows and sees everything, the Lord and giver of life. And then also from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, and get this more specifically, to him who loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom, and priest to God his Father. To him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's rich. (laughs) That's setting the stage for the whole book. The revelation that we're about to receive is from God the Father, through the Holy Spirit, about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who isn't just a hero for us, but he is our Savior. He is our Redeemer. He is the one who loved us, He is the one who freed us from our sins by his blood, and he made us a kingdom. In other words, he made us royal, and he made us priests. He's making us a holy people. We couldn't do it on our own. In Adam, we were ruined. We remember all the way back to Genesis. And now this story is coming full bore. How are you made right with God? Through Christ. How are you holy? By an imputed righteousness given to you. How are you forgiven? Not just because the Father took an eraser and said, my standards were too high. Let me overlook some of these things. No, by the precious blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. By the Lamb that was slain. He was crucified for us. He endured the punishment and the wrath that should have been meted out upon us. Jesus Christ took in his flesh and that we have been uh, freed from our sins by his blood. The wages of sin is death and Jesus died. Now fortunately, right, he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose again. He is risen. That makes all the difference in the world as we talked about last week, right? And he made us a kingdom. He made us priests. So to him belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So it's highlighting this at the very beginning. Don't forget this. I'm going to tell you about wars. I'm going to tell you about rumors of wars. I'm going to tell you about dragons. I'm going to tell you about serpents. I'm going to tell you about a whore. I'm going to tell you about all these kind of things. Ah. Grace and peace be to you. From him who is and who was and who is to come and from the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful, crucified for us, risen for us, ruling and reigning for us, preparing a place for us, and coming again for us. Be comforted. Be assured. Because if you start to look at your newspaper more than you look at Scripture, you're going to think, uh-oh. 
The most helpful tool that you have in interpreting the book of Revelation is the Old Testament, not CNN or Fox. It had to make sense to the people who were living in the first century. John wasn't writing just to the 21st century church, which he was. But the people in the first century could say, I get this. I get wars and rumors of wars and persecution. The people in the third century, I get wars and rumors of wars and persecution. The people in the seventh century, 15th century, 16th century, 19th century, 20, this is for the people of God who are partners with John in the tribulation. We've seen more because there's been more sin and more wickedness just based on time and people. But it's the same war. It's the same battle. It's the same thing. And we're expecting and awaiting the return of the king. And so now we're going to yada, yada, yada from Revelation 1 to 22. <laughs> Jump to 22. I'm going <laughs> to... So a lot of stuff happens. <laughs> Go to Revelation 22. I was thinking about, I don't know what y'all want to do next year for Sunday school, but this might be a good thing to do. Maybe Revelation would be a good thing for us to go through in our time, to, time together here. So maybe this is the teaser. So. What's that? All right. <laughs> so um, look at Revelation 22. Let's start a little bit in 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write these things down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexually immoral, uh, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, the portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He's talking about judgment and the second death, right? But here notice that he sees a vision, right, in heaven, coming down, the, the new Jerusalem prepared for us. And he says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. This was the intention in the garden, wasn't it? But it was ruined by Adam. It's restored a billionfold in Christ, the second Adam, the, the last Adam. What was lost in Adam is more than gained in Christ. But that story and that promise are there that we are going to be with God. We were kicked out of the garden because we were in sinful rebellion. And he didn't want us to eat of the tree of life while we were in that sinful state. And guess where the tree of life shows up again? 
in the next chapter of Revelation, where the tree of life is in that midst, where we have peace with God and we are with him, and nothing can ever separate us. I love this, all these no mores. It says, he will wipe away every tear from the eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Think of all the no mores of heaven. And we just witnessed uh, and heard a memorial service for our dear friend yesterday, right? Remember in Revelation 5, John and everyone was weeping because there was no one found worthy to open the scroll. And now it's saying God the Father himself is going to come and wipe away your tears. There's no more reason for tears. No more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death. No more illness, no more hatred, no more weakness, no more of our own sin, no being sinned against, and no living in a sin-cursed world. No more AIDS, no more sexism, no more racism, no more abuse, no more lying, no more cheating, no more stealing. It's like a world we've never even lived in. It's unfathomable to think about. We haven't lived a day of our life without sinning and being sinned against and living in a sin-cursed world no more. God himself will wipe away our tears and never again will we be touched or affected by any of those things because Christ has paid the penalty for them all or conquered them all or both. And then go on and read, skip down to 22, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. That's why we're created, right? To worship God and enjoy him forever. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign with him forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. Isn't that remarkable? I love the candor of the authors of Scripture. You know, when I had Facebook 20 years ago, I don't have it anymore, but like I, I always used to say the good things about me, right? Not the bad things. <laughs> Here, he's saying he worshiped an angel. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of the book, worship God. This angel who showed him all these things. Imagine seeing everything that John saw, and he's just like <sighs> falling over to worship the angel. And the angel saying, no, no, no. That's not why I'm here. I'm here to bear testimony about him, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
And he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Which, if we had time to get into it, is different than Daniel. Daniel was told to seal up the words of the book because it's not time. He's telling John, oh, no, no, oh, it's time. (laughs) The end is near. Open up. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And then don't miss this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride, the spirit and the church, say come. And let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. What a remarkable ending, right? Think of it as bookends to the beginning when it was introducing who he is. This is from Christ, about Christ, him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Yada, 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 yada. And then Jesus, I, Jesus, have sent my spirit to testify to you. Come. Jesus says come. The Holy Spirit says come. The church says come. We're calling anyone who wants life, anyone who wants forgiveness, anyone who wants righteousness, anyone who wants to escape the wrath of God, come. Come to Jesus. Repent and believe and you will be saved. And we have an obligation and a duty to warn, if you do not come, then the plagues described in this book will be visited on you. Either Jesus endured God's wrath for you or you will endure God's wrath. Come. Jesus says, he is worthy. He is worthy to receive praise and honor and glory forever and ever. He is worthy of your trust. He's shown himself worthy. And he calls and he says, come. And this is all meant to be a great comfort to us individually and great comfort to us as church and great comfort to us as churches as we wait between the tick and the talk of Christ's coming. Beloved, he is risen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you don't pull any punches and that you don't tell us it's all going to be unicorns and ice cream until Christ comes again, but that we're in a battle and that as people have hated you and hated your word and hated your gospel and hated your son, so it will be until he returns again. We thank you that we ought not to be surprised by these things, And we thank you that you haven't left us to battle those things on our own or even to figure out how to do this on our own, but it's Christ in us. This is the power of God. You are for us. You are with us. You are in us. uh, And you work through us, Father. 
we know that you will accomplish all of your purposes. And though we are indeed uh, living in a veil of tears, a valley of tears, Father, I pray that we would keep our ears attuned to the gospel, that we would believe your promises, and that we would have our eyes fixed on the horizon awaiting the return of the King. And as those who have been shown so much mercy and so much grace, may that be our posture towards a lost and dying world as well. May we placard Christ before them that they may know and that they may believe and that they may have life. In Jesus' name, amen.